HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade. From the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods, like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, you also find it in ripening foods, like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. episode of the soul by todd richards i have one of the greatest people in the world and i don't use that term uh lightly when i say greatest uh, you think of muhammad ali uh you know will come to mind the first but what sean shavis has done in her career and certainly what she's done for my career i believe she's one of the greatest people that i know and really proud to have her on soul by todd richards so sean shavis welcome to soul thank you so much so if anyone wants to know background about the word soul or where the soul uh, came from, the name soul actually came from my book, Soul. Um, and John Shavis helped me write the book, Soul, which is a, a task of its own. Uh, me being a first time writer and, and not knowing what the hell I was supposed to be doing. And even from a book proposal standpoint, you know, just gathering all the information just to write a book proposal. Most people don't understand the process. So I wanted to have Sean come on here because I get that question so many times about how to write a book, how to write a book. And there's many ways to do it, but we're just going to journey uh, down the pathway of soul. And then later on, we're going to get into some um, things about the new age of writing uh, in uh, American literature, especially when it comes to African-American writers on in the media standpoint. So Sean, um, Right quick, we started that book proposal. I mean, that was a task alone. Can you just tell people, uh, first of all, what is a book proposal? Sure. Um, so a book proposal is kind of like your business plan for a book. Um, most people realize that it's going to be 
Um, it's going to have some sample chapters or it gives the publisher an idea of what the book is about and what the writer is going to say. Um, and that's really important. And uh, it's also kind of a business plan because you, the other way to think of it is you're producing a product and you're trying to get the publisher to put in the money to produce that product. And so you have to also show them, is it marketable? Is there an audience for it? What are you going to do to help sell it? And so it includes a lot of that information too. Um, when When I work with people on their proposals, I think it's like your best opportunity to get your vision out and to protect and get your vision out there by being really preemptive and being really focused about what your vision is for the book. And um, I I remember when we first started working together, you had some very clear ideas of what you wanted to say in your book. And so that's what we really focused on. We really kind of honed that message down. Um, But all of that's really important to get. You know, know, I guess let's let's go back even further a little bit is that, you know, the question I ask people when they ask me the question about how to write a book, I ask them, why do you want to write a book? Because I don't think that people mm-hmm. really get a good understanding of why they should write a book, first of all, and the factors that go into it, like timing of the subject matter, things like that. Why do you think people in general should write you know, books, especially cookbooks? I think, yeah, that's a really great question because like, you know, how many soul food books have there been? How many Italian books have there been? And so, I mean, does the world, you know, when you look at it, you know, does the world really need another Italian cookbook, right? Or French, yes. really, right? You know, a French, right? But the thing is, is like, what do you bring to that conversation that's unique? You know, mm-hmm. so like I think about your book, you have a very specific, unique take on soul food, and you had a very particular message that you wanted to share with people. And so that's that's why I think you need to that's what you really need to focus on when you're thinking about why do I want to write a book? Like what is your message? What are you trying to to share? What conversation are you trying to start, you know, or what stance are you trying to take when you want to get out there? You know, when first time writers like myself, I think we have these delusional ideas, um, you know, that, you know, the world is going to come see us. They're going to be, you know, uh, Spike Lee is going to write a movie from our books, you know, <laughs> you know, things like that are going to take take place. And I want to go back to this question about proposal, um, where I believe that a lot of people have these illusions of grandeur. And you say the proposal is a business plan. How do they take into account the business of writing a book and developing that first initial business plan? Um, so it's, it, it takes, it takes, a, there's a lot that they take into account. I think everybody knows the publishing industry has changed in the last 15, even 10 years. Um, and so uh, some of the things that I think really impact it now are, you know, what do you bring to the table as an author? You know, like, I think people have this idea that back in the good old days, authors got huge advances and all they had to do was write and the publisher took care of the rest. And now you really are a partner in in creating that book and getting it to market and writing the book and getting it published and getting that first box of printed copies, like, that feels like an accomplishment, but it's really just the beginning, you know, and you have to get out there and, and help sell it. Um, and so there are a lot of factors into, I mean, just the, the numbers of, is this a viable product and will we make money off of it? Is there an audience? Is the timing right? Like, are there 
other books out there that are, are coming out that are overlapping with your message. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a there's a lot of different perspectives. Um, even just aesthetically, is it is it a pretty is it a good package? Is it appealing? Um, you know, is it you know something people are attracted to or interested in? Um, so there's a lot that goes into it. You know, in working um, on our you know initial book proposal, and you know we had. Uh, great meetings about it. But one thing I don't think that people also understand about writing a book is the compellingness of the story that you're telling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really, is it a personal? I mean, I think that people really have to understand what they're saying in their message. With Soul, there was a clear message. You know, we're talking about, you know, African-American cookery, uh, soul food, uh, and the modern takes on that with a somewhat biographical standpoint to show people if I can make it, you can make it too. How much of the personal element do people need to put into their cookbooks that really distinguish themselves from other cookbooks? I think it's really important because the thing that really distinguishes a cookbook from a magazine or getting recipes online is your voice. You know, like I can go online and find a collard greens recipe, but it's missing that Todd Richards voice and that Todd Richards take. And that's what you're really getting in a cookbook, whether it's, you know, here's your life experience and you're sharing that story with me or your historical perspective, or, you know, you are a culinary expert and you're helping me to increase um, my culinary expertise and create a really good meal, um, or you're taking me on a journey to some place that I've never been, and you're giving me kind of that indulgence of wanderlust through your book. Um, so voice is really, really important. When I first start working with authors, usually I make them do an exercise in voice, and I tell them to like grab a bunch of. I don't know if I did if I if I had you do this or not, but I usually tell people to like get a bunch of roast chicken recipes from a bunch mm-hmm. of different cookbooks, right? Mm-hmm. And compare those roast chicken recipes, right? So like. At the end of every single one, you're going to get a perfectly good roast chicken if you follow the directions, right? Right. Like you can get Julia Child's roast chicken recipe and Tony Bourdain's chicken recipe and, you know, Nigella Lawson's roast chicken recipe, your roast chicken recipe. All of them will give you a delicious chicken at the end. But there's a difference in the way that you get there. And that difference is voice. Mm. And if you pick up all those recipes from all those different authors, they're all very different. I would definitely agree. You know, we did do that exercise and I would say that, you know, in comparison, I don't think my chicken recipe that I wrote was um, like the others. And one reason is I didn't want to be like the others. Mm -hmm. I I really didn't want to have the same uh, pretense that they can go to Julie Child's book or Anthony Bourdain's book and see a variation of my recipe. I wanted to come up with something that was unique to me and my, my uh, perspective. But also, I want to ask, um, in the process of writing a book, uh, what about agents? Because I, I believe that people don't understand, that especially with these big publishing houses, even the mid-level publishing house, uh, what is the role of an agent and what, you know, when do you need to look for an agent to present your book? Absolutely. So you want to get your proposal done first or mostly done and then start shopping it around to agents. Um, and an agent is the person who um, helps you build relationships with publishers and helps to, to broker 
your deal with the publisher. And then even after you have a contract, they can help um, negotiate some of the elements that happen along the way. Um, so it, the, the agent is a really great person to have on your side. Um, number one, they can help you hone your proposal. Um, like they, they have relationships with other publishers. Um, they know what publishers are looking for. They know the people at the different publishing houses. They can take a look at your proposal and figure out which publishing opportunity might be the best fit for your book. Um, they know what the publishers are working on and have coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they know what who the editors are. They know what the editors are looking for and, you know, what, what, uh, what they really are attracted to. So it's really important to have um, an agent. Now, certainly as an editor, I've worked with authors who didn't have agents, but I think especially for a first-time author, it's really beneficial to have an agent. I mean, they just know all the secret handshakes and they, you know, they know <laughs> right. <everybody. laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, it is funny, you know, just, um, you know, working with my agent, uh, Lisa Eckes, mm-hmm. uh, Eckes Group, it was really an experience uh, to to go through that. And it, then next thing you know, we started going through a little bidding war on, on Seoul. And it was like, wow, you know, someone really, uh, not, not only does someone really, do, do, you know, do this work, you know, as an agent, but then, you know, all these people that you even heard of behind the scenes who uh, uh, help so many authors write books. I know with this last proposal uh, we did, uh, 10 Speed was looking at the new book and, you know, 10 Speed is one of my favorite publishing houses in the sense that they do all Charlie Charter's uh, cookbooks. And it was really great, you know, to see that the, the team behind it. Uh, my next question and really about writing, though, you know, so say your proposal got there. Um, it went to a publishing house, uh, let's just say a mid-major or a major publishing house, e- either one. And you get to negotiating this advance. And I don't think people really understand what an advance truly is for. And I believe the landscape of what advance has changed, whereas me, I am a working chef also and restaurateur. So my advance, you know, what might be going to have an assistant, you know, or a co-writer with me, or I might have to pay for photography. Can you give them maybe in depth what the, the use of an advance would be in a couple of different scenarios? Absolutely. Um, so number one, like a lot of people think the advance is like, people think, oh, I got a big advance, you know, and, and they're really looking for a big advance. And you want to be careful about that because the advance is an advance against royalties. So basically you have to earn out the amount of your advance before you see any money. So sometimes a big advance is not a good thing, especially if you're looking to get money on the back end of your book. Um, but then that said, like today, the advance um, it really depends on the publisher, but um, that's not necessarily money for you just to kind of, you know, take a sabbatical from your job and, you know, sit down and write the book. You may or may not be able to do that. But a lot of times your advance now is um, to help pay for producing the book. So and again, it really just depends on who the publisher is um, and, and what kind of advance you get. But sometimes you have to set aside that advance to pay for an editor to help you. Um, if the publishing house doesn't provide one, you may need to pay for the photography team. You may need to pay for recipe testing to have somebody who's totally independent, who's never seen your recipes before to test them, to see that, you know, they can get to the result that 
you expect them to get. Um, you know, so there are different elements um, of producing a cookbook that you might have to spend that advance on to get your book published. You know, I look at it from the standpoint that, you know, all deals are not the same uh, when it comes to restaurants. I mean, sorry, when it comes to books. Well, all deals are not the same when it comes to restaurants as well. Uh, believe me, if you look at my inbox right now, I feel like I got 20 leases in there that people want me to sign. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> you know, but, you know, the, the deals with books and, and publishers is that, you know, when I'm asked advice, I say, well, sometimes you have to trust your instinct when it comes to a publisher and really look at what their catalog already has. If there are so many things like yours in their catalog, are you just a, you know, a step and repeat for them? Or are they really taking a look at your book and saying, now we need to build this whole new category uh, in our publishing catalog for this type of book? And I think with Soul, you know, Soul kind of did that, um, you know, with uh, Southern Living and Time, now now Meredith. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a whole different category than I think. And they really stepped out on Letha Faith saying that we need to uh, push ourselves into this new platform. And it goes back to, I think, what you're saying about the proposal, having your unique voice uh, inside of it. But then you have to sit down and actually write the damn book. You know, I mean, and and I think that people miss that part of it as well and what it takes to write a book. Uh, So it was 150 recipes. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, we did 158 recipes. Only eight of them didn't make it. How we did that, I still don't know. Um, But, you know, from the process of after you get your advance and you're sitting down writing the book, what type of dedication and time does it take to get this book done? Um, you really need to uh, you really need to set aside some time to work on it every day. So don't don't feel like you have to have a sabbatical. Um, I've had uh, a, certainly you were a, work, a, a working chef when you did your book. Um, I had another author who was actually an entrepreneur running an ice cream company, and he wrote a book. At, you know, and he like would you know cook for his family, go upstairs and write at night when everybody was in bed, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just a matter of deciding when are you going to find yourself um, several hours every day to work on your book. Um, So don't think that you have to, you know, that, that can, you know, that has to be the only thing you're working on, but you really have to be committed to carving out time and sticking with it every day. You know, and just turn the recipes, you know, so is 150 recipes, but that really breaks down, you know, in many different ways. You know, you have the, the pantry section of the book, um, which just covers all the basic things like, you know, and so there's rubs, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's sauces and things like that, which is just the pantry section. And that took up, you know, 15, 20 recipes by, by themselves. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we have these recipes for like chicken and waffles, which is really three different recipes by itself. Mm-hmm. And understanding you had the brine for the chicken, how to fry the chicken. And then we had the whole waffle recipe and it was a collard green waffle in one of the sections. So now you got collard green and a waffle. That's a whole different recipe. Mm-hmm. There's so many things that you want to say, how do you um, help authors really narrow down their scope of a book in order to make it not so overwhelming to consumers, first of all, and secondly, make sure that it doesn't just become stale on, on the bookshelf. Yeah, exactly. That's that's a really good question. I really try to help authors, number one, really clarify, like, what do they, why are they writing the book? And, and really get clear on that, which you should get a good idea of that when you're writing your proposal and go through that process. Mm-hmm. And then the other, the other side of it is, 
what do you want the person who's reading your book to get out of it? Like, do you want them to feel like they're a better cook? Do you want them to feel like, you know, they've explored a new, you know, culture or country that they've never been to before? Um, You know, do you want to make them a dinnertime hero? Do you want to help them live a healthier life? Like, what do you want them to get out of that book? And that should really help me narrow down the focus of what you put in the book, because now you're not just creating recipes. Now you're curating recipes Mm. for that collection that accomplishes that goal, right? That's, that's what makes the clarifying, you know, that that's, what's a gatekeeper to what you put in the book. Like, what are they want at? What do you, what are they supposed to get out of it? And are you creating collection that helps them accomplish that? Uh, one more question before we take a break here. Uh, it is really about soul food cookbooks in general, where, you know, we looked at soul food books in the research for, for soul, and there was no flip factor in the book. Everything was just uh, black and white recipes that went straight across. Or if it was there, there was very few recipes in the entire book. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sorry, very few pictures in the entire book. Where is the landscape of photography in cookbooks how has that changed maybe over the last even five, 10, maybe even 20 years? Yeah. Um, I mean, websites and social media, uh, you know, platforms like Instagram have totally changed photography. And I totally get like when I was a kid, like you were lucky to get a cookbook that had photos in it. And now mm-hmm. people expect a photo with every with every recipe. Um, and so and that's that <laughs> does or doesn't happen, just kind of depending on the budget. Um, but yeah, like. It, I think the photography um, now is a little more um, more impromptu, like it has kind of like that Instagram look um, sometimes. Um, number one, people use photography, number one, to inspire them to eat, like, hey, that looks good. Let's make that. Right. And then number two, like people kind of use the photography to as kind of like a guide, like, you know, am I, am, my does my dish match this? Like, you know, am I headed the right way? Did I do it right? You know, kind of photography. And then there's the actual like process photography that, you know, here's how to do a complicated technique kind of thing. Um, and so there's still all of that functional photography, but I think the look of it has changed a lot in part because of um, the internet, food network and other cooking shows and platforms like Instagram. We're going to take a quick break here. You're listening to Soul by Todd Richards. My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I'm able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected. And I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to cheeselandia.com.
Welcome back to Soul by Todd Richards. I'm here with my great friend. Uh, again, I use the word great. I don't use it lightly. Um, uh, Sean Chavis, who helped me with my first book, uh, Soul by Todd Richards. Uh, and we we're talking about the process of writing cookbooks because I get that question asked so many times. And I thought it was best to get a real expert on on the podcast instead of me um, telling you my ex only my experience, but get some expertise in here as well. So, Sean, you know, I want to wrap up on, on the part about cookbooks and we're going to start jumping in another subject. But the one thing that I don't think that people understand, too, about writing a cookbook and uh, the time it takes to do so, it almost takes two years to produce a cookbook, mm -hmm. is that the landscape of cookbooks, like you said previously, where, you know, you're expecting the publisher to do all the work. Now the publishers are expecting you to do the, the, the lion's share of the promotions and things like that. How has that changed so much for and then secondly, um, what is your advice to people when they're looking at how to promote their cookbooks once it's released? Right. So it's it's changed in part because it can be really expensive to uh, market a book. And um, it, obviously, the author is the best person to sell the book. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I think it's uh, it was just a natural progression of uh, publishing houses to really um, engage the author in selling their book and doing more. Um, people don't do book tours anymore, like on the road book tours like they used to. Um, now we take advantage of technology and television and social media and, and what have you. But um, it's, it is very different. It's really more of a partnership and it helps the publisher ameliorate their costs um, and engages you not only as a, a writer, but you're really getting mm -hmm. out there to help sell it. And so what publishers will look for is platform, what they call platform. And basically they want to know, do you have the audience and the relationships to really sell the book in a meaningful way? And you can build your platform in different ways. Obviously, like a lot of people, um, you know, these days have started out as food bloggers and they built big audiences, mm -hmm. um, but that's, or, or they had social media audiences on Instagram and, you know, huge followers, but there's other ways too. Like your platform was pretty much your restaurants and you have, you know, all these people familiar with you because they're coming to your venue every day and that's your platform. They love your food, that you have relationships with them. You're out in the dining room. They read about you in the local newspaper, you know, they love you. And, um, you know, that's one way to build a platform. Platform. Um, Yadam Ottolenghi built his platform um, not only through his restaurants, but writing for The Guardian and his food <laughs> column. You know, um, grocery stores or, or people who run, like I've seen some independent grocery store owners write cookbooks and it's their platform is all the people they have coming in their doors. Um, so there's different ways to build your platform. Um, and the number one thing to remember now, it's not just about numbers. Like, you know, it's about the quality of those relationships, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I would argue that, you know, a chef like you who's out there getting to know, you know, in the dining room every day, or, you know, people are walking up to your counter and getting to know you has a stronger relationship than some people on social media who really aren't engaging, you know, with their with their people um, in a in a back and forth two way conversation kind of way. I think uh, content, you know, is always an important with that. Uh, I'm if any advice I give to people is to take uh, you know fifteen percent of your advance and put it away and put that towards your own marketing budget. Mm -hmm. That's what I did with, with Soul. And, you know, Soul's tour was, you know, funded by the publisher for six weeks. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of it, you know, I, I funded myself 
you know, from the events. And it's really just understanding business and how to operate a business. And, and I ask people also, when they ask me about writing a cookbook, and I ask them, have you ever run a business before? Because if you haven't run a business before, uh, I would say that the first thing you should learn to do or research is the how to run a business, because this is a business. It's not just a wishful thinking um, or, you know, I have a story to tell. Uh, you can tell your story on, in a blog. You can tell your story in, on IG or any social media, and you don't. it won't cost you anything to publish. If you want to write a book, then certainly you need to know how to operate a business because in, in the day, that's, that's, that's what it is. I want to switch subjects a little bit. And, uh, and, and you and I, uh, you know, we go back and forth on Twitter with a lot of people. Uh, I, I think we're like wonder twins. You know, we, we, we power and activate. And when people start getting, you know, wayward and things like that. But one thing I've seen, you know, in the last year and probably the last even two years, uh, with a lot of things that have transpired in our country is that the landscape of food media uh, in its whole has changed. That uh, uh, we've seen so many people, quote unquote, called to the carpet, either justly or, or, or unjustly. Uh, we've seen people, uh, you know, lose their, their uh, ways of living because of, of fallacies or operating in ways of the past. And my first question is, do you think that these changes uh, and food media is here to stay, or is it just going to be something that appeases everyone and then eventually goes back to where it was, or is there like a hybrid or, or, or a continuing of just keep calling people out until there's no more publications there for us to read? Oh, that's a good question. It's <laughs> <laughs> a big question. But, you know, I mean, every time I, you know, I stop going online for a minute there because, like, every time I go online, it's like, man, they're canceling somebody else. Like, I mean, who the hell is left? You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I really hope that there's some hybrid and that we're, you know, not just keeping, we're not that people aren't continuing to make the same mistakes, but they're that you know we're all looking around and kind of reading the room and starting to learn and, um, you know be more in, intelligent in the way that we approach food media. Um, so I hope that there's some hybrid going forward. Um, I do see more publications kind of, or, or media outlets going, Hey, I, you know, Ooh, that happened. I don't want that to be me. Um, you know, what can I do? And they start looking at, Hey, who do we have in the room? Uh, we need to, you know, change this up, you know, or, you know, really kind of wanting to learn more about how they can do better. So mm -hmm. I, I'm hoping that there will be some kind of hybrid as we move forward. And and I think that the changes will stay. Um, I think that, I think that, that the fact that America is becoming increasingly diverse mm -hmm. will mm -hmm. influence the people who own the food media or who are creating food media. Um, so I'm, I'm optimistic about that, but I think we do still have to take a very intentional approach to it. You know, I look at Byron Island, you know, who's a really great guy, you know, who owns uh, the Weather Channel. He owns all these types of, mm -hmm. of media in his own um, and, you know, Ebony is going through changes. Uh, a lot of these publications that we grew up with are going through changes. And I'm not sure if these changes are here to stay with them because I don't know how long they're going to last um, because it seems like they're behind times and even embracing things like social media and these new platforms. It's just like there's a new app coming out, you know, every week um, developing these stories. How is it that for independent writers, 
they seem to have uh, a twofold problem. One, that they're not getting uh, compensated in the manner in which a staff writer is. And two, uh, they're so easily dismissed. Uh, and the next person that comes along, how do we uh, qualify uh, independent writers in this platform uh, of the new you know, media in the sense that they seem to be fighting because they're being overshadowed uh, by a establishment and not necessarily on the content of their writings. Yeah, that's a big question. Wow. There's only so many people that can answer a big question like that. You know, there's that's not true. so many people that, that can. So. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it's it is a it's a very valid question because you're right. Like if you are if you are a writer, um, you're not getting paid what you used to get paid, especially if you're freelance. Like when I was at Health Magazine and this was 10 years ago, I was paying people as an editor two or three dollars a word to write. And that might sound like a lot, but it's not just the writing that I'm paying for, but their expertise and the fact that they're going to do research and make sure everything's accurate. Um, and, and there's just a lot that goes into that. Um, and now writers are lucky to get 50 cents a word if you're freelance and you really wow. can't. Wow. Wow. It's yeah. So imagine taking that kind of pay cut in the last 10 years. It's really hard. Um, and, and the opportunities, you know, as more publications consolidate or, you know, like we just heard Savour is now ending their print publication and going all digital, like there's fewer opportunities for people to get their work published by mainstream or, or large publications and large media outlets. Um, so I, like how we legitimize it going forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way my vision would be that we create our own platforms, our own publishing houses um, and find models to make them um, not only lucrative for everybody that's involved, but attractive enough that we could in- a- attract the kinds of investors to make the kind of impact that you need to make, you know, mm-hmm. to really, um, but how you create that, I don't know. <laughs> I would love to see it happen. But, you know, I look at, um, you know, I always have uh, a ton of musical references in um, in my writing, you know, so most people say, why do you put a, a playlist in your cookbook? I said, because it's a total experience. You know, mm-hmm. you go into a restaurant, there's no music playing, you think the place is dead, you know, and it's about developing a rhythm when you're cutting um, as well. And I look at, at, at music, like the, the hip hop generation in the 80s, they created their own labels. And then, mm-hmm. and then mainstream became more distribution houses than they did actually uh, recording and being part of the content of the music. Uh, it, can we do the same thing like that in food writing is what I, I often wonder is, you know, why do we continue to ask for equal seat at the table uh, when we're more than capable of creating our own table? And if it's just because of resources, then are we banding together to formulate the resources that we need to take this on? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think that that's a valid point. And I think that, I mean, there's there's models that are kind of like that, like HuffPo. Um, but I think that it'd be really cool to see, um, especially writers who are people of color, come together to create a platform where people are really honing their craft, doing good work, and then, um, you know, finding these big avenues to, to distribute it. In a, in a way that they're making what they need to make. 
um, or, you know, adding, like using it as a platform to really spring off other types of ways of generating the money they need to make. So, Sean, as we look at this platform that we're talking about with media um, in terms of food writing and writing in general, and whereas local media maybe doesn't embrace and fully all the great writers we have. I know like in Atlanta, we have Michael Jordan, Christopher Daniel. There's so many, uh, many more here. Uh, how do we you know, look at a platform where we can collectively come together and become great writers? I'm not saying necessarily like a union or anything like that, but really what I want to do uh, in the last couple of minutes here is maybe give some, some pathways forward to, to better uh, solve the problem than to find us continuing complaining about the problem of trends in media. Like you said previously, uh, that words used to be two to three dollars, now they're 50 cents. I mean, that's a quarter uh, to, to one sixth of what pay used to be mm -hmm. per word. Uh, and, and it's not just because I don't, I believe the content is actually getting stronger, not weaker. Uh, mm -hmm. what, do you, what other things do you suggest that we do in coming together to solve this food media writing problem for people of color? Um, I, you know, there are a couple of ideas that I think we could explore. Um, crowdfunding is becoming um, more nuanced and more open to more people and not just kind of like rewards based crowdfunding like Kickstarter, but also equity crowdfunding where you're actually owning a piece of the company. Um, there might be some possibilities there. Um, you know, there, there might be some possibilities in kind of the Patreon model um, where people are just acting as patrons to a group of writers um, or media. Um, you know, I've even seen some creative models where a bunch of artists got together or creatives got together and formed a company where they were actually providing services to um, corporations or to clients um, in, a, in a manner that supports the rest of the work that we do. I think that's really a great point. I think that's a really great point, you know, in the model that, you know, we can use a lot of things that people have done before. And also that, you know, we don't necessarily have to re reinvent the wheel here. But, you know, I, I guess also, though, too, is that, you know, this new way of writing uh, seems to me there's more competition than ever before because you can make your own platform and blogging and where people thought blogging was going to go to the wayside, it's really just transforming into something different, you know, where it could be mm -hmm. from social media, from IG and TikTok, where you're curating that experience you want to express it with people. And it goes back to what you were saying about the book um, writing is that is your personal perspective. But I also think there's ways that we have to look at it, you know, where we do have to band together in, in doing so. So I really thankful for that advice, you know, that you gave everyone. Right, we've got a couple of minutes left here, and I just want to give you some opportunity to talk about the projects that you're working on. Uh, I think that you, um, like me, are, are a serial entrepreneur. Um, there's <laughs> nothing that can ever uh, cross our desk that we wouldn't take a hard look at before we're saying no. And, um, and if it's a maybe, that's a yes for us as well. You know, so what new projects are you working on um, that we can share with the audience right now? Yeah, I am working on the last two years. I've been working on a new project. Um, it's called Living Book. And it started because kind of out of my career of working in health media, like I, I was most of my cookbook work was in healthy cookbooks. And before that, I was at Health Magazine. Um, and I've certainly had my own health struggles and trying to figure out how do I cook to, to meet my needs and also keep my family happy. And I, I can't. I had a friend who 
her experience really kind of hit me in the head and went and made me think. She had symptoms for years that doctors couldn't diagnose. Finally, a doctor told her she had a rare autoimmune disorder and gave her this terrible list. We've all seen those, right? You go to the doctor, <laughs> right? You oh know, right? Um, and the list looks like Brian, it's been copied. Yeah, one on one, right? Oh my goodness! You know, like, 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 how the hell do you expect somebody to get uh, well eating bland? You know, like, exactly. I mean, it totally kills the soul. It totally kills the spirit. Like, come on! I mean, come on! I mean. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So she got this list and she started crying, which is a, a perfectly natural response to Blaine right. yes. 101. <laughs> right? Oh my goodness. And, uh, and um and so I was like, you know, what if instead of this terrible list that makes her feel overwhelmed and puts her in tears, she could instead get a cookbook for recipes or food that she likes that are already modified to support her condition. And it's personalized and it makes her feel confident about making her lifestyle change. And so that's the company that I've started. I like, uh, I actually sold my family farm so I could bootstrap this. Oh, wow. Yeah, I went all in. All the chips are on the table. And Mm -hmm. so uh, we've built a tech platform. I've got a couple of really great tech people here in Atlanta that have been building this. And so basically we built a platform. So if you go to the doctor right now, we're just focusing on heart disease. But if you go to the doctor and they say, hey, um, you know, you've got high blood pressure, you've got some warning signs here, you need to eat for heart health. You can come to our website and you can build a personal profile with your food needs and preferences. And then you get a list of recipes that match your profile. You choose the recipes that you like and it gives you, you get to create your own cookbook. You can even choose a cover image and you can personalize the title. So it could say great food every day with Todd, for example, and you get an immediate downloadable PDF. So you could start cooking that night. And then two weeks later, you get a printed one of a kind cookbook in the mail just for you. It doesn't scream diabetes or bland 101 on the cover. <laughs> right, right. Right? It, it, it's a beautiful book. And it's it's really great because it engages you. It engages your family. The other cool thing that we did was um, you could actually shop from the pages of the book. Whoa. I mean, really? So you can actually get your shopping list and everything done uh, for, for, you know, during this all in one one place. Yeah, we we put QR codes in the book. So every recipe has its own QR code. You scan the QR code with your camera app on your phone and it gives you a grocery list for the ingredients in that recipe. And you click two buttons and you can order your ingredients from Instacart or Amazon Fresh or Walmart. I mean, that's so amazing. And that's what I'm talking about, you know, utilizing the full um, uh, uh, platform of social media and technology. Um, one thing that, you know, I was talking about the publications earlier that, that are really going by the wayside, and it seems like they lost their voice and not embracing this. And you're taking something that is a need. And I'm not even sure it's only a need for people who have this, you know, this problem, you know, or might have health concerns. It's not like just a basic need that everyone, you know, wants to have. And what I like about it also is that it's not just bland food. You know, it's really, right. you know, I, I, I don't know anyone who can sit at a table and have a good time with somebody with bland food in front of them, you know? <laughs> right. You know, one thing you and I used to joke about is that, you know, if you go into a restaurant and everybody's breaking up, you know, the food ain't no damn good. Cause you cannot break up with good food in front of you. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? 
That's, you know, and that's true. Like when I was kind of researching, you know, what are people's needs? um, I talked to a lot of people who were um, Black, Latino from the islands or from West Africa, you know, other uh, Puerto Rico. And one of their biggest needs was, you know, what the dietitian or doctor gave me is bland 101. It doesn't reflect my culture and the food that I grew up with. And some people are like, you know, okay, I, I doctor it, but then I wonder am I doctoring it in a, in a way that's uh, counterproductive to my health goals? Mm, and mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of like, a lot of the stuff we get from doctors and dietitians don't reflect all of the culture that we have in the United States. Like you should be able to get a list or a book that reflects who you are, that connects you to the health tradition that you grew up with. Um, and so that's what we're really focused on. Do you think that you, you have a, a, underlying purpose in this? Because what it sounds like to me is something that, you know, I talk about all the time that all soul food, actually 95% of soul food is not bad for you. You know, that we were vegetarians, mm-hmm. you know, our diets were used to be nothing but vegetables first, were a little bit of meat. Some had to do with economic status, but also it comes from cultural status as well. Do you think you have an underlying purpose in this? Because now you sound like you're going to be able to dispel some myths even further than me just writing one cookbook. Absolutely. <laughs> that is my that is my underlying mission. Um, you know, when I was an editor at Health Magazine, I would get press releases all the time from, you know, different medical journals and, you know, associations. And when they would talk about uh, Black people and health, mm. um, it was always like, you know, well, you know, the African-American diet is full of, fat and salt and sugar and it always character and almost seemed like a boilerplate like left over from the 70s and I just kept using it for 50 years later and so mm-hmm. um it, it always characterized um african-american cuisines and it wouldn't even it wouldn't even acknowledge that we had more than one cuisine right um but then it would always characterize the food as being unhealthy which is so not true um I think that what people associate soul food with or Southern and Southern food with is the commercialized stuff that people get. And they don't really look at the roots of our traditions, which are very um, vegetable based and agrarian. Um, I remember going to my great aunt and my, my grandmother and my aunt's house and all of them had gardens and were growing lots of produce. And so when we had meals, there were always like four or five different vegetables on the table, Mm -hmm. you know, and, And so I think that, um, and I think that's true in traditional Southern cooking too. I think everybody thinks, you know, what you get at KFC when they think of Southern, but when you really look at the roots of Southern, you go back to books like Edna Lewis and even Mm -hmm. further, uh, it's very vegetable based. Um, And and macaroni and cheese is not a vegetable common, you know, (laughs) to to what people think it is, is not a, not, not a vegetable at, at all. And but also in understanding the double starches that we eat, they were healthy starches like, you know, sweet potatoes and rice, you know, you know, sweet potatoes might be a starch, but it's filled with, you know, beta carotene and things like that, that are really good for us and, Absolutely. And, and, and items like that. So I'm not really sure, you know, where that, you know, that came from, but it's good to see someone from either from a health perspective uh, not, you know, blanding our food down so much and not losing the cultural references and historic value in which the food came from. We, I mean, I really appreciate that so much. So, Sean, tell everyone, please, where they can find you on social media. 
Sure. I am on Twitter, Instagram, at Sean Chavis. So just my first and last name, at Sean Chavis. Uh, and then my company, if you're interested in the cookbooks I talked about, um, is livingbook.com with no eyes. So lvngbook.com. And you can find us on Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter. Sean, I, I thank you so much. Uh, uh, if anyone wants a reference point to where we are at uh, in this time of year for uh, in, in this podcast recording, uh, we are past the inauguration. Uh, we are still living in a COVID society. And after six gloomy days of uh, Atlanta being under weather and just terrible, uh, the sun just came out. I'm looking out my window here, and the sun just peeked out. I am out. too. Uh, you know, <laughs> so uh, apparently, uh, 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 Sean, with this uh, this great ideas that she's coming up with, is doing the work of, of Mother Nature because we need more people like that <laughs> in reference to what we need to solve not only our problems in our own community, but to give people the proper perspective of what our community is. So, Sean, thank you so much uh, of coming on uh, Soul by Todd Richards and. Of course, I will see you somewhere in the A pretty soon. Uh, Absolutely, we, we might be the only two people to have mask on, but you know what? What can you? <laughs> what, what can you say? Welcome, welcome to Atlanta. You're listening to Soul by Todd Richards. Soul by Todd Richards is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of Food World's most innovative community? Subscribe to shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.